Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Let's go. August is upon us. Uh, September is almost here. Uh, 2021 is almost over, and uh, Christmas is, is right around the corner, it feels like, I guess. The, the summer has just flown uh, by. Uh, if this is your first time joining us, my name is Pastor Alberto. I have the honor and privilege uh, to lead this church. If you're joining us online, uh, welcome. Uh, before we jump into the word, uh, I just want to give uh, and share a, a minor uh, COVID-19 guideline update. It seems like uh, the world that we're living in is uh, constantly uh, changing and evolving. And, and one thing that we've said from the very beginning is that uh, we want to be as flexible as possible and move into the future uh, with joy. And so what that means for us is that uh, as we look at our community, uh, there is a variant. Cases are rising Uh, We have seen that Hayes County has asked uh, uh, teachers and students to wear masks, so we're kind of uh, employing the same thing in kids' church. So we're asking kids' workers uh, to wear masks while they're serving. And for us, we will continue to maintain a a mask-optional service. Uh, We want to encourage, even recommend mask wearing. We we see that there's some sort of benefit to it, uh, but it's not required uh, to participate in worship. And so really, what we're inviting you to is to, uh, based on your own convictions, uh, put into practice what you see as best fit for you and your family. Uh, there will be absolutely uh, no uh, mask shaming or, or, or even mask enforcing. We're inviting you uh, to put into practice what is most comfortable for you as we gather and worship the Lord. And I do want to encourage you uh, that our church has been in such a unique place. Uh, our, our church has been sustained by the grace of God. Uh, we haven't seen any outbreaks uh, with our leadership team, with our volunteers. Uh, I, we, I boast that we have a, a very high uh, uh, vaccine rate, and, and we know there's some benefit to that. There is some immunity in this gathering. And so I want you to be at peace that when we uh, gather, uh, it is a, a safe gathering uh, to the best of our abilities, um, and we believe that, that we can move into the future with joy and flexibility. Now listen, I am no prophet, although some of you may say I am because I'm so great. Uh, I do not, I'm just kidding, I'm not a prophet. That's a joke. It didn't land well. Uh, but I got to ease the tension. Come on, guys. Who, who likes giving COVID updates? Not me. Uh, so I got I to break the tension a little bit. I'm not a prophet. I'm not prophetic. I have no idea what tomorrow will look like. I have no idea what next Sunday will look like. Uh, For all I know, we could end up uh, reinforcing or reinstituting different guidelines. But I do know this, is that God goes before us. And so we can move confidently into the future with joy and with hope. Uh, We're citizens of the kingdom of God. So that means that, that our hope isn't dictated on what's happening out there, but it's found upon a person and his name is Jesus. And so as long as Jesus is the, the chief elder, the chief shepherd, the chief leader of this church, the cornerstone of this church, we will move forward into the future with joy and flexibility. Uh, so I want to thank you guys for just coming along this journey. Uh, I can't wait to watch this uh, live stream uh, a year from now, two years from now, maybe five years from now, and see how this moment in the life of our church was not a divisive moment, but was a moment of joy and unity as we continue to gather and not lift up our preferences, but seek the Lord together. So thank you guys for uh, being flexible and coming on this journey with us. Now let's get into the word, uh, my favorite time, my favorite portion uh, of of the service. Uh, This morning we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to kick off sort of a mini-series for the next few weeks uh, through 
chapter 2. Uh, if you were with us last fall, uh, late October uh, into the end of November, uh, I had the great privilege of, of, of kicking off a series through the book of Ephesians. And we spent quite a few weeks in chapter 1 alone. And as I was looking through those old notes, I was just, uh, just moved by so much hope and gratitude towards the Lord. I had so much fun uh, in chapter 1 uh, that when we ended it because of Advent, I, I was a little sad. Now I'm, I'm glad that we can jump right back uh, into chapter 2, uh, which is probably one of my favorite chapters in the scripture. Uh, I have a, a friend, Josh, many of you know him. Uh, he has this joke uh, that, you know, when people ask him, like, hey, what's your, what's your favorite gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? He's like, I'm more of an Ephesians guy. Uh, Ephesians is like, it's like my go-to, and, and I share that sentiment. I, I, I love the book of Ephesians. It's an incredibly refreshing book filled with so much deep truths about God that when we really let it settle into our heart, we'll experience the grace of God more and more in our lives. And so this morning, we're going to look at eight verses, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 8, as we kick off this new series from death to life. I want to invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. This is what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. With the remaining time we have together, there's this, this portion of scripture sort of broken down uh, in, into two sections. The first one is the problem, and the second is the solution. The problem and the solution. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name, and we ask that you would come um, and make us even more aware of your presence at work. Uh, Lord, thank you for that wonderful uh, reminder and encouragement that you gave us through Jessica, uh, that it is such a sacred thing to be in community, uh, that something life-changing happens when we gather and we look into your word. I pray that we would experience transformation and hope and joy and love this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The problem. Uh, you and I know that, that we live in a world, world filled with all sorts of problems. We see economic problems, political problems, racial problems. Uh, we, we see health problems. And, and, and you and I know that, 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 that solutions are only as, as good as our ability to identify that the thing that we're struggling with is a problem. Uh, and unless we realize that, that whatever area of life that we're navigating in is problematic, uh, then we won't be as open to the solution. And so like any good physician, what Paul begins to do in this first portion of Scripture is really elevate the problem. And he does this from such a pure pastoral heart because he knows, as, as Tim Keller points out, that unless we realize the magnitude of, of our problem, the magnitude of our sinfulness, we'll never really appreciate the grace of God. 
And unless we realize sort of the problem that we're sort of navigating and living in, we'll never really pursue or walk towards the solution. Uh, in April, I found myself at the uh, doctor's office, uh, not because I had COVID. I, I tested negative, but I wasn't feeling too well. Um, I, I felt like really uh, fatigued, and I, and I, you know, we're family, so I had this weird rash on my shoulder. Uh, and so uh, when I went there, the doctor was like, I have no idea what's wrong with you, uh, but I think this thing will self-resolve. And, uh, and I said, man, that's so helpful. Thank you so much uh, for, for, for telling me that, that you have no idea what's wrong with me. And, and this, it was comical. He was on his computer for a long time. He even said, I've never seen anything like this. And I thought to myself, this is, this is not going well. But he did reassure me that, that maybe it will self-resolve. And so in that moment, this, this doctor, he's a good physician, I, I love him, he's a great guy, uh, failed to identify the problem. And because there was no really identification of the issue, there was really no solution that could be pursued. And yes, it did self-resolve, I'm totally healthy, uh, praise be to God. And so Paul, what he's doing in this moment, is going to let us know what the problem is. He's going to let us know what the issue is, not with me, with every single one of us. And there's one thing that the scripture makes very, very clear is that you and I are not what we are supposed to be. You and I are not what we are supposed to be. And we all feel this tension in our hearts. We all feel that in our humanity that there's something missing. Uh, we almost feel like there's, there, there's something missing inside of us that is keeping us from experiencing life, from coming alive. And every single person in this room would agree that there's probably an area of your life that you're disappointed with. Uh, that isn't bringing you joy, that isn't bringing you life, where you feel hopeless in church, we're not supposed to be that way. God did not design us to live like that. And yet there is this issue that we're all sort of navigating, and it's you and I are not what we are supposed to be. And Paul begins to unpack this. He says uh, in verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So man experiences this moment of disobedience in the garden that we're going to touch on later. Sin enters into humanity. Something went terribly wrong, and now you and I are not what we are supposed to be. And so we know there's tons of problems in the world. We, we see them out there. We can identify them, but often what we don't do is identify the problem in here. And when we do, when we realize, oh, maybe there is something that is off, maybe there is something that isn't the way it's supposed to be, uh, we, we, we identify the fruit, but we never really get to the root of the issue. We call it things like low self-esteem. Maybe I'm having a bad day. We say things like, I have, uh, if I just had more resources, if I just had more money, if I had more time, then maybe my quality of life would increase. Maybe the issue wouldn't be the issue. And we look at the thing, but what Paul is saying is that there's actually a thing beneath the thing, and it's sin. And, and he's saying that, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so what Paul begins to unpack it, it, it is that our life apart from Christ is characterized by death. It's characterized by trespasses and sin. So I, I like to think about it like this. Uh, have you ever seen those memes on Facebook that's like, uh, you know, this thing starter kit, like a, a Cowboys fan starter kit? And uh, it's like a picture of like an, a guy wearing an oversized jersey and jean shorts and like weird Jordans. Like if you see that, you know you're looking at a... 
Cowboys super fan. Now, if you're that person, no disrespect to you. I want to be that person this fall. Uh, and, and so uh, you see this, and, and, and this sort of super fan, Cowboys super fan, is characterized by this style. Uh, there's some really funny ones that's like early 2000s worship leader, and it's like skinny jeans, a vest, and a fedora. Like that's a, that's, that's a character, characterization of a worship leader. And what Paul is saying is that this life of death is characterized by two things, trespasses and sins. And so what we see happening here is that this is our problem and this is the problem that God has to overcome in order to establish a relationship with us. You see, this death isn't just a physical death that we're all going to experience. Rather, this death is an alienation from the one who gives life, as Clinton Arnold says in his commentary on this. So when we experience death, it's because we are so separated from the life giver. And so this death ends up being characterized by trespasses. And so what does that mean? This means breaking God's law. When we look at the Old Testament, we see God give his good law. We see uh, the Ten Commandments, but there's 600 plus more. And it's sort of this, the boundaries that God would set for a relationship with him. Uh, They weren't restrictive. They were actually meant to be liberating because God's heart and idea was that if you would order your life around this law, around this way of living, you would actually maximize the quality of your life and have a deeper relationship with me. Uh, And so it's not when God says, hey, man, like eating pork is a sin. It's, man, maybe pork is kind of unhealthy, but all the bacon lovers said yes and amen to the new covenant. Uh, And so what God is saying is like he's not withholding, he's not being restrictive, rather he's setting the parameters for a life-giving relationship. And what do the people of God do time after time? They do what you and I do. We go above God's law and we become the lawgivers for our life. We say things like, okay, God, uh, maybe your plan for, maybe this is your desire for sexual wholeness, but I'm going to do whatever I want and give myself to all sorts of relationships and things that I think are good for me. God, maybe this is your plan for stewardship and generosity, but I'm going to do whatever I want with my money because I think I know what's best. And the Bible calls this trespassing against God because you're willingly breaking his law. And so remember, God's intention with the law was not to restrict you. It was to liberate us, to define good parameters for relationship with him. But but Paul takes it a step further. He says, not only have you committed treason against the king of the universe, but you're also enslaved. And, And the idea here is that apart from Christ, we are held captive by sin uh, through three kinds of bondage. Uh, Verse 2 and 3 reveal three kinds of prison guards that their full-time job is to keep you in this jail cell of death so you experience no life in Christ. And Paul calls them out. He says the first one is the world. The second is the enemy. And the third is the flesh. And he says that these three prison guards are working together. They are in unison with one another, creating this sort of symphony that sinners cannot escape from spiritual death. These three prison guards are full on full time, never taking a break, trying to do everything in their power to keep you enslaved and in bondage to sin. And Paul says that these three prison guards 
are at work keeping us from experiencing life in Christ. So let's, let's go through them uh, one by one. The first one is the world. Uh, Paul says, in, in, in the, following the course of the world in which you once walked. Now, I want to kind of spend a little bit of time here on this word walk. Uh, walk doesn't necessarily mean sort of like a, a direction in, in which you're going. Rather, this was a common metaphor in Judaism for one's everyday behavior or conduct in life. It, it, it sort of meant like this was uh, the lifestyle that you sort of embodied or lived. Like, like you either walked in righteousness, in good deeds, practicing love, or you walked in evil. And so when we look at this, this word world, uh, uh, this has more to do uh, not necessarily with God's creation, but with the systems that provide a script for living in opposition against God. When, when, when Paul talks about the world, he does this a, a few times, he's not talking about uh, planet Earth, rather he's specifically talking about systems, values that people uh, erect that stand in direct opposition against God. Uh, apart from his kingdom values. Now, we could go on and on about all sorts of values. You see these values that, 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 that people embody and want to live out. Values that, that say, uh, that, that, that maybe uh, erect like, uh, your greatest good is living for yourself instead of living for God. Uh, that the highest quality of life is maybe found in making as much money as you can and pursuing all uh, the cravings of your heart. We see all sorts of values of the world that may say, hey, the best way to get ahead at work is to just cut as many corners as possible and cover your steps. All sorts of values that, that, that we see. These are obvious, but I want to focus in on, uh, on one specific one, one that, that I think is uh, very common uh, to this day and age that we live in. And this is the idol of autonomy. Autonomy is, is sort of defined as the ability to make our own decisions without being directed by anyone else to be self-governing. And, and hear me, church, uh, being able to make decisions for yourself, uh, to be self-governing to an extent, is not a bad thing. It becomes an ultimate thing or an evil thing when we govern ourselves so much so that God's opinion and God's word doesn't hold any value in our life. When we choose to be the absolute Lord of our life and take, uh, take uh, God's will out of consideration and only t- take in our own desires into consideration. And this idol become, can become so dangerous because it leads to narcissism, self-loving, self-living for the absolute love of yourself. Now hear me, none of us would say, oh man, I'm a narcissist in this room. Of course we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say uh, that, that it's all about me. But if we're honest with each other, we all crave self-sufficiency. Uh, we all crave doing things our own way. We all crave calling the shots, ordering our household in such a way where my comfort is optimized. Ordering our relationships in such a way where my preferences aren't violated. Ordering our, our, our schedule in such a way where I can get done what I want to get done, even if it means not plugging into community. Maybe we wouldn't say that, that uh, we're bowing down to this idol of autonomy, but all of us in one way or another are pursuing self-sufficiency. And like I said, it's not a bad thing, but when you make it an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. And so we look for life and we look for power in, in what? In status. 
How, how, how can I elevate myself so people can think I'm important and valuable and I have dignity and worth? How can I make more money? How can I create a life of comfort? Where can I find more pleasure? Maybe rise up in the educational ladder. Maybe uh, uh, pursue a better career. My family, children, we all look for life and power in these things. And the reason why these will never satisfy you because they're not God. Your spouse isn't God. They'll never be able to satisfy you the way only God can. Your career isn't God. So no matter how uh, incredible your career is, it'll never be ultimately satisfying because only God can fill that God-shaped hole in your heart. I was having lunch with a friend um, at a conference recently, and uh, one of my closest friends, uh, we, we uh, started doing ministry together, and then he moved uh, to uh, Scotland to pursue a master's degree and came back and, and, uh, and landed his dream job. He said, on paper, on job description, this is my dream job. Like, it, it fits my, my personality, the way I think, the way I like to work. Everything about this job is perfect, and yet I'm no more satisfied than when I was doing the other thing. And church, that, that reveals something about our heart. It is that we're all looking for satisfaction. We're all looking to feel uh, complete and fulfilled. But we're never going to find it in what this world has to offer. Because none of what this world has to offer is God. And God comes and steps into our life and says, hey, uh, let, me, uh, let me enable you to, to find ultimate joy and satisfaction. Not through what this world has to offer, but through a relationship with me. And as we come alive in a relationship with God, we can come alive in wherever God's placed us. Because wherever God places us isn't the place where we find ultimate joy, life, and satisfaction. They can't satisfy because they're not God. And we crave a life of self-sufficiency. The scriptures puts it this way. We want to do what is right in our own eyes. And, and we see this at work in the garden as, as the uh, enemy is trying to destroy us. He's, he's trying to convince us, uh, not that his ways are better, but trying to lure us into doing what we think is right in our own eyes. And so he begins to tempt Adam and Eve and saying, hey, did God really say you can't eat of this? Uh, he's just uh, is worried that you will become like him. Go ahead, take and eat, and so they're influenced by the enemy. They they do what is right in their own eyes, and and now instead of living in obedience to God, they've disobeyed Him, and sin has severed a perfect relationship with God. And as we as we go to uh, the, the the second prison guard, which is the enemy, one thing that is important to point out is that the devil is not looking for converts. This is one of the most deceitful things about satanic worship is that the devil is not looking for people to bow down to him and worship him. Rather, his main goal is to get people to worship themselves. His main goal is to get you to do what is right in your own eyes because he knows if he can get you to worship yourself, you will be so consumed with yourself that you won't bow down and worship God. His main goal is to get people to worship themselves because that is how he can destroy humans and set them on a trajectory of emptiness and death. He's not looking for converts. He's looking for ways to make you look internally and worship yourself. 
And so we see this back in the garden. As we mentioned earlier, he gets Adam and Eve to call the shot for themselves. And Paul says that the enemy, in Ephesians 2, is the prince of the power of the air. Now remember, Paul is writing to a community of faith in Ephesus. And what we know about Ephesus is it was the Mecca for dark magical practices and the worship of false gods. And so when Paul is writing this, uh, in ancient Judaism, the idea of the air was sort of this place where demons were active. Uh, uh, The reason why is because the air is invisible, so it represents the unseen realm of demonic activity. And so when Paul says the prince of the power of the air, he's referencing to the enemy. But he's also pointing out how there is this invisible realm uh, filled with spirits employed by the enemy to wage war against God's good creation. And this enemy is at work seeking to steal, to kill, and destroy our relationship with God. You see, we all... uh, as I mentioned earlier, maybe crave this life of self-sufficiency and the enemy will come in and lure us and begin to distort God's good creation and say, hey, maybe you can find life in that. Okay, maybe that relationship didn't work. Try this one. Uh, uh, maybe, uh, uh, maybe this sort of church didn't work for you. Try that church or that church or that church. And instead of really plugging into a community of faith and a relationship with God, we begin to get deceived by our own desires and how the enemy has distorted God's good creation instead of submitting to the Lordship of Christ. So we see the world functioning as this prison guard that is influencing our values. We see the enemy sort of distorting and disordering God's good creation And then lastly, we see the flesh. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The flesh is what Paul calls this internal mechanism, this thing inside of us that is at work that influences and orders our lives when Christ isn't influencing and order our lives these appetites, it's these cravings to go against God, sometimes willfully, uh, sometimes we're not even aware of it, but it's something inside of us that is moving us, not towards the direction of God, but away from him. It's this idea that our human nature gravitates towards sin. Our human nature, apart from Christ, does not gravitate towards godliness and righteousness. The whole Bible is there to show you that your human nature gravitates towards sin. Uh, that, that it is in your nature to create messes, not clean them up. I, I, I know this because my son creates messes. Uh, and he is a very messy man. And if he gravitated towards righteousness, he would not poop in the bathtub. But he did that because uh, he's a messy man. Uh, that is a different... Uh, thing okay I'll deal with that later uh, it's this idea that our human nature gravitates towards sin it's not always that the enemy is luring you or the world is telling you what to do rather we influence ourselves to sin we influence ourselves to step out against God's will and Paul says that sin has consequences and there's no way around it sin has consequences When we go against God's good order design, we will feel the consequences of sin 
in fractured relationships, disordered desires, all sorts of brokenness and bondage. And ultimately, uh, Paul says that we're alienated. We're separated from God and we're deserving of his wrath. We're deserving of God's judgment towards sin. And, and not because God is like this vindictive God randomly and impersonally raging against humanity. Rather, that's God's stance towards evil. In his holiness, in his love, God's stance toward evil, towards sin, is a righteous anger. Uh, angered by the destructive forces that are corrupting and destroying his precious creation and people. And so in our sinful nature, we deserve to face the wrath of God. And the key to understanding is this, is, is that we live in God's universe. Is that God owns us. That God created us. That he owns everything. This is his domain, not mine. And so I'm obligated to live according to his will and, and, and to his structure. And when we step out against that, we trespass against God. We've sinned against God. And sin is no light thing in the kingdom of God. He owns everything. He owns us and he has ordered a way for us to live that is for our good. And when we disobey him, that, that's called disobedience. And the scripture calls this treason. And we know this. In, in our day and age, treason is no light crime. Even in, in some nations today, treason is punishable by death. And it's important to understand that our disobedience against God is not an isolated event. Yes, you've personally disobeyed God, but now that has incredible ramifications on everything that your life touches. That when we sin against God, it's not just this isolated event. And I say that because the tendency is to enter into self-justification. Man, my, my sin isn't hurting anybody. Uh, uh, the, 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 the addictions that I give myself over to only affect me. But the scriptures make it very clear that when we sin against the Lord, we're not just sinning against him, but we're sinning against ourselves and each other. Because instead of walking in union and harmony with God and restoring and renewing the world, we're actually continuing to perpetuate the darkness that is at work in this world. It's no small crime, and it's not an isolated event. We, we think our sin doesn't affect anyone. But church, that's what the enemy wants us to believe, so that we can stay in bondage to our sin. Because as long as we believe this is only affecting me, we'll never feel the desire to be set free from this because after all, it's just me. And that's not the case. It affects your loved ones. It affects the, 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 the environment that God has placed you in. It affects your outlook on life. It affects the next generation. And it's one small sin in the garden. That severed our relationship with God. One small sin sets a wildfire in our lives that not only hurts ourselves but others. And all three of these, this prison guard of the world, this prison guard of the enemy, this prison guard of our flesh, they're working together to keep us enslaved, to keep us trapped from what? From experiencing life with God. And this is our problem. That you and I are not what we are supposed to be. We've separated ourselves from God. We're in bondage. And the worst part yet is that no matter how hard you try, 
There is nothing you can do to conquer the sinful systems of the world at work against you. No matter how hard you try, there is nothing you can do to conquer the influence of the enemy. No matter how hard you try, there is nothing you can do to defeat the power of the flesh. You've tried. I've tried. You failed. I failed. We have all failed. But God. And Paul begins to turn the corner and show us that there is someone who has never trespassed against the Father. Someone who has never failed. Someone who has defeated sin. Someone who has defeated the enemy. Someone who has defeated the power of the flesh. And he says two words that completely redirect the story of humanity. And if we just leave it here at the problem, this is no better than my doctor visit who said, hey, I don't know what's going on here. But Paul is a good father. Uh, Paul is a good shepherd of his church. And he says, hey, this is the problem. But guess what? There is a solution for you. And it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. And he says, but God. Two words that completely redirect the story of humanity. And if you have these two words, Anchored in your heart, your life will never be the same. If you have these two words settled in your heart, your life will never be the same. The solution, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What is the solution? God. Uh, What is our problem? We've sinned against him. And no matter how hard we try to create a better version of ourselves, we fail. No matter how hard we try to find freedom, we end up in bondage. But God, in his great love, in his great mercy, chose to step into your life and conquer the enemy, conquer the world, conquer the flesh, so that you can be made alive in Christ. But God, being rich in mercy... Well, what is this mercy? It's God withholding the death that we deserve on the cross because Christ endured it for us. And when we look at the cross, it's you and I that should have been hanging there, uh, bearing the weight of our sin and God's wrath toward it. But Christ took our place and endured uh, the wages of our sin, which is death, so that you and I can have life in Christ. And it, it was motivated by this great love with, with, with which Christ has loved us. This love is God's selfless commitment to seek our well-being. This, this, this rugged commitment to seek us out and go the distance in rescuing us, though we are the one who's trespassed against him. To go the distance to initiate the reconciliation, though we should have initiated it because we've trespassed against him. But there's more. Paul says that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love. So what this means is that when you are painfully aware of your sins, when you are painfully aware of the most broken parts of your life, when you are painfully aware of this part of your life and you begin to think to yourself, will I ever experience life? Will I ever experience victory? Will I ever get better? 
Paul says God is rich in mercy and he loves us with a great love. So what this means is that when you don't have the strength to overcome, when you don't have the strength to overcome the world, the enemy, and the flesh, there is good news for you. God is rich and mercy and he loves you with this great love, so much so that he makes you come alive. Not because of anything good you've done, but because of who he is and what he's done for you. So when you are gripped by the weight of your sin and the brokenness of your life and the enemy wants to make you look inward to find a solution or to look outward and outward into the world uh, to try to fix this problem, the Holy Spirit comes in and lifts our eyes off of ourselves and lets us look to but God. The, the wonderful Father, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who comes to set us free from ourselves. And what this means is that you don't have to go find a solution to your problem, uh, to your sin uh, within yourself. He invites us to look to him and experience and embrace the freedom he's already died for and made available for you. You see, the life that your heart desperately desires... The life that you desperately want to experience is not found in a different relationship. It's not found in a different career. It's not found in more money, less bills, new city, old city. It's found in a person who has come to set you free because of his mercy and great love. All of this, church, has to do with but God. But God stepping into our story and freeing us from ourselves. But God saying there's nothing you need to do to earn your salvation, to experience victory, to overcome this bondage. I've already done it for you. But God. So when you feel this temptation, but now go and do better. But God. When you feel this temptation, like, oh man, I, I, I'm a Christian now and Jesus loves me and, I, and I've come to faith. Now let me go work really hard and prove that, that my life is okay. No, but God, he's done it all. Look to him. Now hear me, this is the, uh, the harsh reality that I'll argue every single person in this room will agree on or has at least experienced. Being made aware of sin does not initially change you. Being made aware of sin, seeing sin, living in compromise, seeing compromise, seeing disorder and dysfunction does not initially change you. This is what changes you. Seeing Jesus. Seeing him. Experiencing him falling in love with him and following him, seeing his beauty as, as far more beautiful than anything this world has to offer and experiencing him. This is what changes us. And this is why Paul in Titus 2 says that Jesus has appeared, bringing salvation. Jesus has appeared so we can see him. Jesus has appeared as the grace of God, bringing salvation. Jesus has appeared to deliver us from this sin mechanism inside all of us. Jesus has appeared to restore and purposefully love us into all that God has called us to be. Jesus has appeared so that you can find worth, so that you can find value, so that you can find purpose in him and not other lesser shallow 
meaningless things. Jesus has come to rescue you from your sin. Jesus has come to deliver you from your bondage, from your shame, from your guilt, from death, from yourself. Jesus has appeared. Jesus has appeared and revealed himself so that you can take your eyes off of yourself, off of your shame, off of your addictions, off of your insecurity, and see him. Setting your eyes on him. And as you see him, as you turn to him, you will become more like him. You will experience him. You see, when Jesus comes and meets you, he doesn't show up to shame you and reveal how sinful you are and leave you to yourself. No. He comes and he rescues you. He invites you into relationship. He comes alongside of us and trains us to be more like him. That's why Paul says this amazing part. He has raised us up and seated us. But God is good enough. Okay, God, you saved me. You rescued me. That's amazing. This father does not stop lavishing us with good gifts. He says he raises us up and he has seated us. Verse 6, he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He's raised us up. Uh, This means that we've already been accepted and approved by God. Uh, That when Jesus rose from the dead and conquered sin and conquered death, you and I share in his death. We share in his resurrection and we share in his victory over sin. And, and, And not only has he raised us up, not only is our life now identified with Christ, he seated us. Uh, the, the idea here is, is, is that there's this great wedding banquet and Jesus has reserved a seat for you at his table. Uh, that, that Jesus has invited you to sit at the table with King Jesus. And this seat isn't just any ordinary seat. This is the seat of authority in full view of an enemy that has been defeated. You sit with Jesus in full view of all the brokenness and addiction that Jesus has conquered. You sit with Jesus um, in a room with him, united with him. You have not only been, your sins have not only been dealt with, you've not only been identified with Christ, you have the authority and power of Christ at work in you. So that he doesn't just leave us to ourselves and say, hey, go on and do good. Now we are freed to embrace and live in relationship with him, to experience authority and intimacy with God, to be so free from ourselves that we can look to Jesus and now that we are not alienated, we can be made alive because we've been restored. The wonderful news of the gospel, church, is that Jesus has transferred us us from this world to his kingdom. The wonderful news of the gospel is that we're now free from the power of the, uh, of the prince of the power of the air, and now we're free to embrace the prince of peace. The wonderful news of the gospel is now that, that we can be made free from the power of the flesh because the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us. And his empowering presence helps us overcome the flesh. The wonderful news of the gospel is yes, Apart from Christ, we're dead in sin. But God has made us alive in Jesus. Are you experiencing this life?
Are you experiencing this good news? Jesus invites us to embrace him, to turn to him, to cross over from death into life, as simple as this act of faith in saying, Lord, I renounce the self-sufficiency, I renounce the temptation to be God of my life, and I want to make you God of my life. And the scripture says that we're immediately adopted into his kingdom. And, we, and immediately uh, we enter into relationship with God. And now our life as a disciple of Jesus becomes about living and believing and seeing all that God has made available for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray before we transition to communion. Lord, I praise you for this wonderful gift of life. Lord, I thank you that, that, that you love us so much so that, that, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you could have left us there. You, you could have uh, kept us uh, uh, to ourselves, and, and yet because of your great love and your great compassion and your great grace and your great mercy, compelled by love, you, you, you came and entered into our story lived the life that we should have lived and died the gruesome death on the cross so that we can have your life so that we can be in relationship with you. I just want to take a a moment to pray uh, for a few people. Maybe you're in this room and, 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 and you've just been gripped by the problem and you've been maybe living in this problem of sin and you never thought that there could be a solution Jesus has come and he has appeared to offer salvation and bring you into his kingdom and deliver you from yourself from the power of the enemy power of the flesh and the power of the world and if you want to enter into this relationship with Jesus if you want to follow Jesus I want to pray for you Uh, Would you be so bold with every eye closed and head bowed? Would you shoot up your hand so I can pray for you? Next, I just want to walk us through this moment of of repentance. Maybe some of us find ourselves in this room where where we know that, 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 that we have a relationship with God, but there's parts of our hearts that still don't trust Him, that uh, maybe still don't uh, believe Him uh, or, or, or choose not to submit to Him and maybe we find ourselves leaning into self-sufficiency and, and leaning into uh, trying to be uh, in control of our lives. And maybe you just need prayer that God would come and meet you and empower you all over again to trust Him, to love Him, to walk with Him. If you need prayer for that, would you shoot up your hand so I can pray for you? Lord, thank you that you have appeared not to shame us, not to condemn us, but to invite us. To invite us into a relationship with you that is life-giving for our good and for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would come and do the work that only you can do, which is the work of transformation. Would you come and search our hearts and search our mind and move us from unbelief to belief? Would you come and move us from distrust to overwhelming confidence in you? Would you come and move us from hopelessness to hope, from despair to joy? Would you come, Holy Spirit, and help us see the Lord, knowing that if we see him, we'll never be the same again. Thank you, Lord.
Thank you, Lord, for this people. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name.